Welcome to Home of the Brave. I'm Scott Carrier. One morning, back in November of 2001, I was standing next to the Amu Darya, the river that separates Uzbekistan from Afghanistan. I was standing on the Uzbek side, and I needed to get across to the Afghan side because the war was starting and I was a war correspondent. The river was about a half mile wide with a swift current and deep enough for tugboats and barges. The water was full of glacial silt from the Pamirs, among the highest mountains in the world. Across the river was the Bactrian Desert, home of the double hump camel. To my left, upriver, there was a bridge of rusting steel, strong enough in 1988 for Soviet tanks in retreat, but now it was closed because a new war was starting. No one going in or out, including me, which meant I was fucked. I'd come all that way and the door was shut and I was looking at a huge failure. But then I went into a restaurant to have some breakfast and there was only one other customer, a photojournalist named Alan Chin from New York City. And he said, have you heard about the boat? And I said, what boat? And he said, there's a boat making a special trip taking journalists across the river. Do you want to go? So I got into Afghanistan because of Alan Chin. And then we worked together, along with about 15 other journalists covering the beginning of the war. The first battle, the first US casualty, and a grim scenario where Taliban prisoners were being killed, massacred by our allies, the Uzbek militia. Then we went our separate ways. I stopped covering wars, but Alan kept going back. Sometimes I'd see one of his photos in the New York Times, but I never saw Alan again until recently, 18 years after we met. I talked to him in his apartment in New York City. I wanted to know what he'd seen and learned about war. We're on the Lower East Side here. We're very close to the Manhattan Bridge. You grew up in New York City. Yeah, I was born in New York. I was actually the first member of my family born in the United States. Um, my parents were Chinese immigrants. Neither of them spoke English well. Um, they were both union garment workers and what you know, making making clothes, manufacturing. So I've been a lifelong New Yorker, growing up here in Chinatown and around Chinatown, the Lower East Side. Well, looking back on your the time, I want to talk about your war experiences. Because basically I want to talk about, I want to do a story that's anti-war. Maybe you don't, are not anti-war, I'm not sure if you describe yourself as that. Because I wouldn't actually, believe it or not, I wouldn't actually say that I'm anti-war. I'm anti-many of the wars I've covered, like the Iraq War. I would say it's the war that I'm completely against. But I wouldn't say I was against the wars in the Balkans that I covered. I wouldn't even say I was against the initial part of the war in Afghanistan, the American war in Afghanistan after 9-11. I've been very much against some of the ways these wars have been fought. But I'm not a pacifist. I've never been a pacifist. I think there is such a thing as a just war. Is that the... Is that what an anti-war person is, a pacifist? No. No, because... No, no, because I think you can be anti-war in terms of against invading somebody, but you can be pro-war in the sense of 
being willing to defend yourself. Those can be different things. They're not always, but... Okay, so an example of that would be what? I would say in the days after 9-11... The World Trade Center. Yeah. It's, how close is it? was it? A mile, a mile and a half. Right. Five minute, eight minute bike ride. Right? It's close. You were here. Yeah, I was. Um, my brother called me. And he said, you know, do you know? And I said, do I know what? He goes, planes have hit the World Trade Center buildings. And I said, what are you talking about? And I went and I turned on the television and um, all the channels were out because the antenna for the regular TV had been on top of the World Trade Center. But I could catch just a flickering image of both towers burning. And I was like, oh, shit. That's the first image you saw. Yeah, and then I also realized that the FDR drive, there were no cars on it, which is obviously very unusual, right? And there were just emergency vehicles barreling down it with their sirens going and no other cars. I thought, okay, this is, this is the real thing. And, but even at that moment, I said to my then-girlfriend who was with me, um, Yannick is her name, she's French. I said, okay, I think I'm probably going to be gone most of the day. <laughs> Why are we laughing? Because it's funny. It's funny. It is funny. And I pulled out a box of 20 rolls of film. If you were a professional photographer in those days, you, you got film in these 20 roll boxes, two cameras, rushed out the door on my bike, and biked down to the World Trade Center. And even as I was biking down there, I could see them burning, but I didn't stop because I, I, I just wanted to get there. I get to basically the foot of the building on Vasey Street, which is where that churchyard is, St. Paul's Church, and the um, graveyard, which is uh, historic, you know, from the Revolutionary War and all that. And it's right across the street from the World Trade Center. I was just dealing with the immediate reality of two burning buildings, and I started photographing them, and as, as I was photographing it, I heard someone say, oh my God, there's another one, and I realized this person meant somebody falling or jumping. And I finished one roll of film, 36 exposures, and as I was trying to reload that camera, somebody said, holy shit, it's going. And myself and all the small group of people on that sidewalk, we all ran into the lobby of a building there, right on Vasey Street, because we thought maybe this thing is going to fall down on top of us, right? And in fact, we ran into the basement of that building. And of course, boom, you know, the whole world was filled, you know, like, like we knew that it had come down, because even in that building, of course, it was, you know, it, it, it was... Uh, chaos and when I came back up remember it was a beautiful sunny September morning um, you know the world went from being this beautiful blue sunny day to total gray black smoke and dust and so that was the world I, I came up into and um, so I started photographing and of course photographing mostly people covered in that dust who were trying to leave the area as quickly as they could then we saw all these firefighters who were basically incredibly, in that moment, it's kind of like, you know, when you're with combat units that are not winning the battle because <laughs> they were trying to reach their units on the radios and they couldn't reach them. And, of course, we now know, of course, they were already dead, but they didn't know that. We didn't know that, right? They're trying to call and, and nobody's responding on the radios. Um, they are also even just trying to contain the situation in the streets because you had cars burning, you had... It's a chaos... Or an, yeah. Or how would you describe it? I would well. I'm just gonna call it the zone. Okay. Yeah. 
every war or war zone or war situation or crisis, right? Because it could be a natural disaster. But whenever that happens, and I think it's an interesting thing, it happened here domestically in New Orleans and, and, and Louisiana during Hurricane Katrina. There's a moment, and this is why I say it happened in Hurricane Katrina, it happened in lower Manhattan for about three days on 9-11 and the two, three days after, right? Because the zone is this area, it's a place, it's a state of mind, it's a situation where the normal rules are totally gone. But it, that doesn't actually mean that it's without rules. There are rules because there are all these infrastructures and organizations and governments and armies and police forces and journalists and, you know, whoever, and regular people who all do their thing. So there are no rules, but there's an army. Yeah. And there's no social organization, and yet there's still interaction socially. Exactly. It's just, it's that these things are in changing, they're in flux, they're Correct. not settled. Exactly. They're, it's hard to interpret, and so everybody, when you're, what I felt there in Afghanistan is that the things were happening so close yes. that people were still having, were ha it was an interpretation, it was a developing interpretation, yes. the story was developing actually what was going on and why. This was hard to know. It's totally hard to know, and sometimes it's unpredictable. And for all that, though, it's not like, um, again, it's not zero, right? That's right. Something's happening. Something's happening, and you know what you're supposed to be doing. You're supposed to be covering the story, and because we come from a certain tradition and ethics and training or whatever it is we have, you know, you go at it a certain way. You, if you're ethical, you're not going to be making stuff up. And yet we hear stories like when we were there, people were telling us that these prisoners are being taken out to the desert and killed and buried, right? Yes. We were hearing that. Yes, we were hearing that. We were hearing that uh, Dostum's men were going into Balkh and shooting, and shooting Pashtuns yes. Yes. at, at yes. night. Yes, that's right. So we, we had no way to prove it because we couldn't get there. We couldn't get access. We right. couldn't go there. Our access was very limited there. But actually later, you know, they did find the bodies in Dusty Lely, you know, like... like some of what we were told, at least we know, was later proven. But even if we had amazing access and they had shot the people right. in front of us, okay. right? Okay. We weren't the people doing the shooting, right? And we would not have had any power to stop it or start it, right? Like, that's the thing. People talk about this, right? That when they're watching stuff like this in real time, it feels like, you know, that you're reviewing something that is almost preordained. You're, you're part of something that's almost fate, kismet, you know, that, that this is unrolling before your eyes because it must unroll this way before your eyes because there is no other way for it to unroll because it was always meant to unroll this way. And any other reality that might have been, of course, at this moment is gone because this reality is now the reality is the reality, right? There was a turn, starting from when I met you in Marjar Sharif in northern Afghanistan, and especially when we started learning about how hundreds, if not a thousand or more, of the Taliban that surrendered had died, had been killed or suffocated to death or otherwise dead in those container trucks. Remember that? Yeah. Right? I, that was when I began to realize this whole thing was not, not correct. Because we're going to war and we send... How many American soldiers did I see on the ground in northern Afghanistan? 20? 15? 
Let's be really generous and say 50. And this is just, come on, we know this. This is not how you fight wars. Doing this whole thing on the cheap, the Donald Rumsfeld, oh, all we have to do is insert our operators, our special operators, our special forces, and then the local guys will do all the work. Well, hey, wait a minute. Right? Like, sure, they'll do all the work. They'll do the fighting and the dying for the most part. And that means, you know, our boys don't have to do the dying especially. Fine. But it means then that when war crimes are committed under our watch that we are also responsible. So we had hundreds, maybe a thousand or more Taliban dying under our responsibility. Yeah. The United States of America. Let's say the Americans didn't know and didn't see but they should have been. Because from the moment they landed, it's your war, baby. Right? I mean, you can't just say, oh yeah, the Afghans do things their way. They throw people into wells. It's not my problem. Yes, it is your problem. Because you've just landed with your Chinook helicopters and your special forces and your air power in so the skies above. To see it going back then. I started to see it going back then. And I realized that this is not how an empire should behave. I don't even have a problem if we, as Americans, said, okay, you Taliban guys are really bad, here's a trial, and in fact, here's a death penalty. You four are going to be executed for having thrown other people into wells, you know? And you ten are going to spend the rest of your lives in jail, and you one hundred are going to spend five years in jail. I do not mind if we do that, okay? I mean, maybe I do, maybe I don't agree with it, maybe I think, okay, this is still an unjust way of whatever, but I get that. I understand when empires do that, right? You invade a country, you take over, you say, you people pissed us off, we're in charge now, we're going to do things our way, and part of our way is a rule of law, right? The British. The British, the French, okay? And, and look, I'm not excusing any of the evil things the British and French did over hundreds of years of imperialism, but they had a system. We don't have a system. Our system is shambles. You've seen it. I've seen it. We've seen it. We've seen it. We saw it in Afghanistan. We saw it in Iraq even more. And I, I, I utterly think that Americans are perhaps uniquely unsuited for postmodern empire. Really? Yes. Why? How can you say that? Because we are the same kind of people... That, yes, this whole thing... You cannot combine safety first with fuck you. They don't combine well. Choose one. If you're going to choose safety first, okay, right. We're going we're gonna to create a society, the nanny state, whatever you want to call it. Some people have bad words for it. Nanny state? Yeah, you know, cradle to grave, whatever, welfare state, got to wear a bike helmet, you know, can't don't run red lights with your bike, don't jaywalk, you know, eat well, organic gardening, higher gas mileage, hybrid cars, and... Um, versus. Versus fuck you. We are a superpower. We have nuclear weapons. We have an industrial base second to none. We still make weapons and tanks. We still know how to train soldiers second to none. And, you know, you get in our way, we're going to, you know, we'll teach you a lesson. Kiss the ring. And yet, and yet we try to combine those, and that's the problem. I see. Huh. And I saw this Somewhere in Iraq. In the, middle, and the result is it, the result is poor because people a don't understand where we're coming from because they don't think either of these ways, or if they do, they've chosen 
And and number two, look, we are in this incredibly weird situation in Iraq, for example, where we have killed thousands of civilians, unarmed civilians, in friendly fire incidents. Why? Because they ran through a checkpoint without realizing it was there. My late colleague Chris Hondros photographed one such incident, some of the most harrowing images of the Iraq War, of this little girl crying after both her parents were killed in their car going through a checkpoint by accident. The Americans just lit up on them. It was poor lighting conditions. It was at dusk, you know, right? I mean, you know how light is is funny at dusk, right? This car comes. These American soldiers are like, who are these people? They say, stop. Nobody stops. They say, stop. Nobody stops. They say, stop. Nobody stops. Light them up. And, and they shoot the car, you know, 120 times. The two adults are, ki- are killed, and the child is, is, is covered in blood and, and, and screaming and crying because she's just, her parents have just been killed, right? So that kind of incident happened in Iraq and Afghanistan on countless times in these last 20 years of war. And you can say, okay, part of that just happens in war. It's regrettable. It's a mistake fine. That's okay. But you can't combine that with, you know, and with this whole thing of, we're not going to fly the American flag in Iraq because it'll offend local sensibilities. We are not responsible for local governance because we are not an empire. We are simply helping out, and the Iraqi police and military and government runs these things. You just have all this disproportionate, you know, on the one hand, not being tough enough where it might matter, and then on the other hand, being way too tough in ways that just are, are destructive. I'm going to take a break here for a breather, like a commercial break, but without a commercial. Just some relaxing music. I'll tell you this. War correspondents are an unusual group of people. They're usually very smart, well-read, good talkers, but they're also perhaps permanently damaged by the things they've seen and been through by choice. They're not victims. Okay, back to the interview. What about PTSD? What about traumatic stress for you? You don't want to talk about it? No, I do want to talk about it. Let's talk about the price. Yes, so, yeah. I would say, I used to answer this question incredibly cynically and blithely. People used to ask me about things like that, like PTSD or, or trauma. You know that word trauma, right? Everyone loves that word trauma. And I used to laugh. You know, because we have stereotypes, right? We have stereotypes about PTSD or trauma. And my answer would be like, look, man, I can enjoy a night at the opera or at the baseball game or on the dance floor, just like anybody else. I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm not, you know, I'm not haunted by these demons. I'm not, in fact, if anything, one of the main reasons, one of my motivations for covering war in the first place was simply to be a more well-rounded and complete person in the time that we live in. Because to be living on this planet as a human being and one who aspires to have some knowledge or impact I'm somebody who's going to care about what happens in the world and what happens to people, and I'm going to make my mark in some way based upon that, right? So if you're going to have that, then for me, it really, to cover war, to know what it was, was a really important part of that. The 
the second more important part of that is that, of course, of my own family history, my my parents had survived the Second World War as civilians, right? As like the people that I photographed in all these conflicts, you know, that the, the displaced, the the unhoused, the civilian victims of war, right? That those were my parents and my grandparents' generations directly. Probably a hundred people in my father's village of three or four hundred people starved to death during the Second World War. So I always used to think, what price? I'm just being... The price, actually, is the people who don't experience war. Because to live in the time that we live in and pretend that everything's okay, and I'm just a normal person, and I, you know, went to college, and now I have a decent job, and I have a beautiful family, and, I, and I'm saving money to buy a house and open a business, and all these normal things you're supposed to do in America, that's actually not fully normal. Because... Yeah, because fully normal means, in 1944, getting drafted and landing on the, in Normandy, right? And, and, and having your best buddy killed. Normal, in 1966, means going to Vietnam, right? Normal should include that, or did include that. But, let's be real. Let's be honest. We're not living in 1966. We're not living in 1944. My generation does not have that experience of war, nor the one right before me. Normal now is different. Normal now is different. So I spent three months in Iraq in 2003 for the invasion, and I spent another three months in 2005, by which point it was truly a civil war, right? The sectarian conflict. And the Americans were part of that, of course, and, and, and viciously part of it. But, but it was... a Three-way, four-way, five-way war. It was it was shifting. It was dangerous. It was foreigners like myself were targets, right? Journalists were targets. And, you know, in that time, three friends and colleagues were killed. You know, two from the New York Times um, and, and uh, Stephen Vincent, who was an American freelancer. Actually, four, I should say. And Marla Ruziska, who was a human rights worker, for four people you know, friends and colleagues, to get killed in a three-month period is pretty high. Um, and also the nature of that war at that time was brutal because the front line was the streets of Baghdad, right? The insurgents had made the strategic and tactical decision, as insurgents often do, that they would be most effective by targeting, without discrimination, pretty much the most vulnerable places where people gathered. And one of the places where people would gather would be these recruiting stations for the Iraqi police and military because they needed troops, right, to fight, right? And they loved to target these places because for obvious reasons, the guys who were signing up to join the army and police are the guys who are going to be fighting the insurgents. So this was one case where there was a crowd and this guy who was probably 16, 17, 18, 19 years old, Max, teenager, young man, had a suicide device around his torso, and he, from what we figured out, he walked into this crowd of, of uh, other young men who were about to you know, sign up for the police or military. A policeman, an Iraqi policeman, noticed that in this crowd of guys that this guy didn't look like everybody else. He was weird. And the guy saw that he was about to be arrested and blew himself up at that moment and killed the policeman who had noticed him, killed himself, obviously, and killed about 14 or 15 other people. And his head, and so the, because the bomb was up around his torso, 
when the when he blew himself up, his head popped off of his body like a champagne cork and landed, who knows, 20, 30, 50 feet away. So I photographed this head and, a, and what is actually a leg, and it looks like, especially from a certain angle, it looks like he's just sleeping, right? Because his head is almost not that bad because it's not smashed. It's not disintegrated. It's Everything else of him was basically disintegrated, right? His torso, nothing left because it blew up. But his head, if, if you looked at it from a certain angle, it just looks like a young man sleeping, which is incredibly disturbing in a way, right? Because then you look closer and you realize, wait, there's nothing attached to that head. So, so that doesn't, those type of images or memories aren't a problem? Yeah, they are. They're a problem. Yeah, so this is what I'm finally getting to. Okay. So what I finally realized is that in a world where most people I know, just by virtue of the time we live in and the society we live in, where most people we know don't have these experiences, and I do, not only do I end up speeding and getting pulled over and fined hundreds of dollars stupidly, but it does mean that there are many, many times when I just feel, you know, a little alienated from the larger conversation, right? You know, other people are going to think about violence or politics or culture a certain way, and I realize I don't necessarily share the way they're thinking or talking about it, right? Because I'm thinking about it from this much more maybe extreme way. I even look at things like Charlottesville, where dozens of people were hurt and people died. One woman died when that car was driven into that crowd horribly. Yeah. I look at that and I think, eh, you know, yeah, show me 40 of these and then we have a story, right? Charlottesville was bad. Show me a Charlottesville every weekend and then we're talking. Because that's the level of violence that you know is, is going to break a society. We're not there yet. Thank God we're not there yet. But yeah, I feel lonely because my response is, yeah, of course it's horrible. And uh, so what? There's a callousness maybe, right? You get desensitized and you get very callous and you get very... Um, jaded? Jaded. Sound like an asshole. You know? That was photojournalist Alan Chin, and he's not an asshole. He's my friend, and his photos are excellent. Lately, he's been taking a break from war reporting because he has a young daughter starting grade school, and he teaches photojournalism at Columbia. He has responsibilities at home. I asked Alan if a war breaks out with Iran, would he go back? And he said he didn't think a war with Iran is going to happen. We know why it would be a bad idea. We know why it wouldn't be that smart. We know why there would not be very much gain, and we know why even from, you know, kind of an imperialistic, right-wing, capitalistic perspective, there's no profit in this. So you, know? you don't think it'll happen for those reasons? It's a rational approach. The rational part of but me... you feel a little unsteady bringing a rational approach to this situation? I do. Rationally, I don't think it'll be ha happen. But but to talk about rational actors at this point is sadly idealistic. People I talk with, mainly friends and family, agree with Alan about a war with Iran. They don't believe something so irrational can happen, so it won't happen. But to me, 
This sounds like the last line of the first act of a play or movie, one we've seen before, where the second act descends into chaos. So I'm going over there to the Persian Gulf to see what it's like, the culture, the geography, to make it more real. Because right now, the whole thing doesn't seem real at all. I'm leaving in a few days, and I'd very much appreciate your support. The home of the brave business model is first do the stories, and then figure out how to pay for them. So far, it's worked pretty well. I'm breaking even at the moment, thanks to a lot of small donations and a few unconditional big ones from the Baltoro Trust, and Becky Liebman, and Ann Milliken. I'd like to thank Larry Massett and Barrett Golding for some editorial advice. Check out our website, homebrave.com, to see some photos by Alan Chin. And you can also press buttons to donate, subscribe, or buy Home of the Brave t-shirts and patches. Also, I've been told it helps a lot in terms of promotion when people rate or comment on this show on iTunes, if you're into it. Thanks for listening.